Welcome to the DTB podcast for February 2024, volume 62, number two. My name is David Fazakli and I'm DTB's deputy editor. Hello, I'm James Cave, editor-in-chief. So thank you for joining us uh, for this podcast, which we are recording in the uh, second week of January. Uh, and we begin the year with some sad news from the USA. Uh, Dr. Sidney Wolf, uh, a colleague and friend of ours, uh, very sadly died on the 1st of January at the age of 86. Uh, James, do you want to explain a bit about Sid and, and what he did and why he was important? Yeah, I mean, I mean, Sidney Wolf was an extremely effective proponent for public health and particularly at putting uh, the evidence forward um, to the FDA regarding drugs. Um, I mean, it all started, I think, in about 1971 when there was an issue with IV fluids being contaminated and no one was really taking much attention of this. Um, and it was basically um, Sid writing to the FDA and releasing that letter to the press that created the amount of pressure that was required for Abbott to recall the contaminated fluids. And from there, he started a health research group and he became a sort of, I suppose, similar to um, our own Andrew Herxheimer. He became a um, real sort of giant of public health and making sure that drugs were safe. And, you know, he worked... Well, he was still working in his to his 80s when we met him in Paris at one of the ISDB meetings, um, I think five years ago now. And he was still actively engaged with um, wanting to ensure uh, that, you know, safety and effectiveness were really important elements of all drug development. And I think, yeah, I think actually we met him even before, I think in Leiden, um, which was was that eight or nine years ago, he was talking about the FDA at an ISDB conference. And as you say, again, in we came across him in 2019 when he was talking about, I think it was EU regulation of medicines. And, and yeah, I was amused when I read read about him that in his mid-70s, he, he semi-retired and reduced his workload to just 45 hours per week. Um, and and he, was, he was forever uh, very active, uh, very engaged, and I think I suppose what struck me most about him was it was well, you know, his passion, uh, his intellect, and, and his curiosity. Because we we sat with him, didn't we, at a couple of ISDB dinners, and he was really good company and and very interesting to talk to. And and I got the impression that he knew lots of stuff and he knew lots of people, but he was really quite modest about it. I agree. I mean, I I, I think it was the outrage. I think, in fact, I think in in um, Public Citizens uh, Memorial to him, they talk about how outrage was his was his catchphrase, and you know he never lost that sense of you know getting stuff done. Um, yeah, really, one of those inspirational people who you meet and think, gosh, why why can't I? You know, I need to work a bit harder because I need to be a bit better and and work a bit harder because if he can do it, why the hell can't I? So, yeah, great man. Lovely, lovely company. And uh, he'll be sorely missed. He, um, you know, I think he testified before hundreds of FDA advisory committees um, and he helped to force, I think, a 20 or 30 dangerous medications off the market. So a, a real giant. And um, he wrote a book, didn't he? I think called Worst 
Worst Pills, Best Pills, which um, is still a very interesting read. So I think, yeah, hard hard to follow, um, and he will be missed. And his, um, yes, The Worst Pills, Best Pills, which I just downloaded yesterday to have, have a look at again, is is now a website of advice on medicines for consumers. I mean, it all came, from, didn't it, from the consumer's kind of advocacy role that he, that he took on. I mean, we were lucky that we, you know, we persuaded him to write an article for our 60th anniversary issue uh, in 2022. And I had I had regular correspondence and phone calls with him during and after that. Uh, and it was always good to talk to him. I always came off the calls feeling that I'd learned something. And he always talked about his family and how proud he was. And, and he and I, we had a mutual interest in running and he'd all tell me about the achievements of his family. So yes, very sad. Um, and we send our condolences to his family, friends, and all, all his colleagues at Public Citizen. Um, and we'll put a link to the article he wrote for us um, for our anniversary issue. Uh, and we'll also put a link to the memorial that the Public Citizen uh, website uh, published for him, which which is, you know, as you say, very interesting reading. Mm. OK, thank you for that. Um, let's, let's, let's go back to the mundane issue of our, of our February issue um, and start with the editorial. Uh, what, what's this one about? Yeah, so tech is just highlighting um, the implications from September's safety alert. There was a safety alert, Department of Health and Social Care um, issued a safety alert in September 2023 about the shortages of medication used for ADHD. Obviously, there's already been issues around atomoxetine, but in addition to that, now methylphenidate, lisdexamphetamine, and guanfacine are all in short supply. And as a consequence of that uh, shortage, um, guidance they suggested that no new patients be initiated on ADHD medication until those supply shortages had been resolved. And Tech quite rightly goes into actually the the implications of that and how actually significant those implications are for a group of people who often underachieve in education are more prone to accidents um, more prone to substance misuse unemployment uh, involvement in the criminal justice system so these are people who already um, are struggling and we now have a situation where treatment which has been demonstrated to be effective in managing this condition is now in short supply and, and patients who've already perhaps waited in some places years to have a diagnosis made by the NHS are now going to have to wait before they get any of their medication and tech just really and sorry he's got a, a co-author Alexandra Lewis um, from the Department of Psychiatry in Cambridgeshire um, they point out that you know this is interesting because there are other we've had other shortages and I think we're going to continue to have other shortages of drugs but this is a particular issue it's 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 a mental health issue there really isn't any other option if this was a a group of ACE inhibitors. Well, we've got other ACE inhibitors we can treat blood pressure for. Even the GLP-1 issue, at least there are other treatments for diabetes we can use. Um, but this is an area where there isn't really any um, alternative. And, and to try and switch medication from one to the other is fraught with difficulties. So I think a big issue, and he's suggesting that, you know, we really haven't got to a point where there's equity of or parity of um esteem with regard to mental health issues versus physical conditions and really this is something we need to be more aware of and, and try and attempt to 
prevent this sort of significant issue for quite a significant group of people. And what it seems to highlight, what I took away from this, you know, several issues, but but one is a access to services, um, high increase in demand, and still not enough capacity to to see people, um, to diagnose and treat them quickly. Uh, and then there's the long-running problem that we've we've picked up several times: the shared care issues. So what happens when prescribing falls between uh, the interface of, of two services and it's that challenge of dealing with uh, I suppose prescribing for a specialist led service so that initiated elsewhere but then the consequences of the supply problem picked up in, in, in primary or may well be picked up in, in primary care um, and, and has it been an issue in your part of the world? Oh, oh, uh, totally. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, I think, and I, and I think that, that as you say it's the fact that we have this sort of shared care system which means that for us to then alter the medication, we go back to the consultant, and these consultants are often already significantly burdened with with their current job, as it were. And now they're having to review patients and see if they can switch drugs. And of course, you may then think you've switched the drug to one that's available, and it transpires that actually that's not available locally. Um, and and these things, this takes up so much time to get this right. Um, you only need. Um, one or two patients in a day to require a switch you can you can spend an hour on that and that's you know five or six patients you're not going to better see and that has implications so um the knock-on unexpected consequences of this sort of shortage are huge and um i i just don't think that as you say the system has really worked out how to deal with this um in a way that is both safe and um equitable for patients and you just wonder whether this might kickstart a discussion about what what is the best model of care for people with ADHD and, and where does it best sit? Um, and does there need to be more kind of movement out into, into primary primary care? The other interesting thing was the um, the point that, that they they made, which you alluded to, which is the high profile we, we saw for shortages of HRT medication and, and semaglutide the furor about it being diverted away from diabetes which quite rightly was causing problems but there hasn't been quite the noise for shortages of adhd medication in the in the lay press no and i think that just demonstrates um how uh, that you know this group of people they don't have many strings to pull or levers to pull and I guess we will come back to ADHD because we said, and certainly one of our priorities for our year ahead is commissioning some articles on, on therapeutics of ADHD. So we will come back to it. Lovely. Okay, thank you. Um, so a DTB select item, one of the ones this month is is a safety alert, um, or it's a double safety alert, so two for the price of one, on fluoroquinolones. Do you want to quickly run through what the safety concerns are? Yes, yeah, so these are two updates. Um on they screw with antibiotics we all know them the ciprofloxacin levofloxacin moxifloxacin possibly the best name of a drug in the world <laughs> ofloxacin the classic um floxacins and we've known for years that there's a significant issue around tendon rupture i think the first case study that looked at this was back in 2006 or even earlier so this is not something that's new um, but 
in 2019, the MHRA raised this issue and they're just raising it again and particularly around certain groups of people. So those over 65 and those over 65 on steroids, that makes a big difference. In fact, I was looking at that case study and although it's a case study and therefore you shouldn't really use numbers needed to harm, actually overall, if you give someone a course of a flu fluoroquinolone, if you give 5,958 courses, one person will um, actually end up with a ruptured tendon. But that drops to only 979 if the patient's taking steroids. Um, so it's a significant issue and we just need to be alert to that. And the, the second MHRA warning actually comes from a coroner's report about a patient who had no history of mental health illness or depression who died um, taking their own life shortly after taking ciprofloxacin. Um, and the MHRA does point out that actually in the summary of product characteristics, there are concerns uh, raised about the possibility of psychiatric reactions and therefore it's important we're alert to them. So uh, those are the two issues that the alert has brought out, just reminding us around the importance of only using these drugs for moderate to severe infections or if you have to use them in patients who uh, no other antibiotic is um, going to be effective for. Um, but I think, you know, there is definitely a quite a significant variation in use. And um, I have to thank you for sending me my own figures for from openprescribing.net on how we're doing in our practice. Um, uh, and that's where you should go. If, if, if you're listening to this and you're interested to know what either your own GP practice is doing or where you work is doing um, openprescribing.net you can search for use of fluoroquinolones and see how you're doing um, uh, and it can be quite a salient thing uh, but actually um, I think we prescribed nine prescriptions for a fluoroquinolone in October 23 and that that's not bad I think. I mean, it's worth saying that the open prescribing data is only for England um, but it, it, it does, as I say, give you a breakdown of, of all prescribing. You can search for any drug. And um, yes, endless hours of fun looking at, at, at trends and, and patterns. Yes, your practice seem to be particularly low. Um, I mean, overall, something like half a million primary care prescriptions for oral fluoroquinolones in the last year. And, but huge variation across practices and across areas, you know, almost threefold for, for, for some. So interesting, some people are using buckets of it and others are using very little. Um, and that may be on your population. I don't, I'm trying to work out why it might, that might be. I can't think of, of a particular population that might be more prone to eating fluoroquinolones. Um, and of course, if you are really, really tight on prescribing antibiotics in general, then it may be that um, you, your figures may be slightly different. But yes, there's definitely, I mean, this was a drug that came out about 1990, I think, ciprofloxacin was the first one. And it, it was it was a significant innovation. I remember, you know, it was so effective against so many different infections. Um, and uh, you know, it's quite interesting how my use of it has, has dropped significantly over the last 30 years. So um, very rarely use it now at all. So if you're based in a GP practice in England and want some homework, go away and have a look at your individual practice prescribing. 
and draw conclusions whether you need to do anything about the uh, level of fluoroquinolone prescribing. Um, okay, thank you for that. Uh, let's quickly move on to our main article this month, which is which is a forum article uh, looking at, uh, I guess, limiting the use of some drugs that are prescribed in primary care. Do you want to say a bit more about this? Yeah, this uh, Mike, um, one of our board members, has written this, and it's a, a really useful um, pricey of almost a part of it is the sort of the, the background to the history to this of, you know, how how um, the system, if you like, has looked at prescribing in primary care and tried to make it more effective and efficient. Um, and Mike immediately reminds us that actually under our terms of service, we have a duty to prescribe on the basis of need. So if you see a patient and you feel they need to have a prescription, then you are duty bound to prescribe it but then on the other hand you have the gmc with a sort of perhaps a more um utilitarian uh, approach saying that doctors must make good use of all of the resources available to you and provide the best service possible taking account of your responsibilities to patients and the wider population which is an interesting sentiment because it uh, what where does that stop um you know, if 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 I don't know if in the county of Berkshire we're doing very well and um, saving money, do I do I continue to to restrict my prescribing to help out another practice or even another country or where does it stop? So interesting bit there. But then but then he goes on to talk about actually we go back to 1984 when the Secretary of State first began to suggest that we ought to have a limited. Um, list of drugs that we can prescribe and actually what happened was the 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 converse what happened was a blacklist if you like was um set up which is actually part 18a if you're interested in the drug tariff and this is full of those really odd um branded sort of remedies like you know bark off cough remedy and all these very strange things um and then in 1984 uh, sorry 1994 the audit commission introduced a prescription for um improvement and they produced another commissioned bulletin in 2003 Pressquip produced its first drop list of drugs they felt that gps don't need to prescribe in 2013 and then really the bit that's sort of now current is from 2017 the nhs um five-year forward view produced um a review working with uh, NHS clinical commissioners and the CCGs looking at the £16 billion spent on medicines and suggesting that actually if they targeted areas of low clinical value you could probably save £400 million per year. So that's really what, where Mike then talks about the rationale for the guidance looking at drugs which have got low clinical effectiveness and perhaps looking at drugs that should never be prescribed and those that might be prescribed in um, exceptional circumstances and he details all that and goes on to really discuss whether this is a sound approach what the benefits are of it but also you know why is it that there's still a number of drugs that are being prescribed with limited effectiveness you know why is that um, so an interesting article um, and just one that really details the issue around how you determine as a practitioner what you should prescribe and what you shouldn't and, and i guess that that initial tension you talked about between 
what a GP's terms of service require them to do, i.e. treat the patient, um, and the GMC's instruction to have you know, value for money in mind um, and make good use of resources. I wonder, wonder whether that tension is is dealing with, is that actually out trumped by the GP's requirement to treat the patient? Yes, I think GPs have got much better that. And part of that, I think, is because there's software solutions now that are in place like Script Switch, which means that there's sort of real-time advice about what you're doing. Um, so I think GPs are better. I think what's interesting, of course, if you look at us globally as a as a country, we are actually very conservative prescribers compared to a lot of other G7 and G20 countries. So I think there's a inherent conservatism. And I think... The fact that, you know, drugs like inclizerin haven't been used very much is because actually um, GPs are, are, you know, quite interested in making sure that they only prescribe cost-effective drugs. Where things get interesting is where you look at those areas where perhaps there hasn't been a significant change despite this 2017 and subsequent advice. You know, why is it that there are some drugs that are a bit sticky now the the easy ones are the ones perhaps like amiodarone and other drugs that are actually prescribed in very low quantities but which actually often it's started off by secondary care and mike does discuss you know that secondary care issue but i think also there's a issue here which is around i think sometimes some drugs are prescribed in an area where there's a complex uncertainty going on um, and where patients and GPs have, have worked together to improve their well-being and health but it's required a less than normal interaction and I think that's a really interesting area and I do remember there's a fascinating graph which talks about certainty versus knowledge and there's a interesting patch in the graph where you have uncertainty and no knowledge and they call it chaos and I think a lot of not a lot of but I think some prescribing sits in that chaos area um, and therefore I think although it may outwardly look to the system and to audit as if this is ineffective prescribing or inefficient prescribing actually it might be really effective prescribing um, so it's an interesting it's an it's an interesting thing um, and I think as GPs, you know, as we are the last professional group that can prescribe anything. And it's important that we do that as effectively as and efficiently as possible. But at the same time, we remain patient centered and recognize that there are times when you have to go off the script if you're going to really look after patients in a personal way. I mean, it's interesting that when you look back at I mean, I suppose the original blacklist, which was a national decision to move some things out of GP prescribing so nobody could prescribe them. Then we had this chaotic period for many years where we were trying to do some sort of soft influencing to say, well, perhaps you shouldn't be prescribing this, shouldn't be prescribing that. But it was very much up to individual areas to work with their their practices, work with their prescribers to persuade them not not to use it. And I think we were, in fact, we were critical of this in in an editorial we wrote in 2017 that said that if you if you are going to expect um, GPs to ration or rationalise their prescribing, you can't leave it to individual areas to come up with with individual prescribing recommendations because then you'll just have differences across the whole country. 
Um, so I guess it's welcome that, that there has been this national approach to um, trying to rationalise some of these areas of prescribing. Interesting, they didn't go for blacklisting particular items, but just left it as a recommendation where it shouldn't be routinely prescribed. But I think, I think one area, and Mike picks it up, um, which would be interesting to look at, is, is actually what's what's been the impact of this on patients and clinical care? Because you could argue that if you stop prescribing something, do you start prescribing something else? So has has have we shifted from from one group of drugs to a different group of drugs for which there is, you know, there is no focus on whether they should or shouldn't be used? So I think I'd I'd like to see a bit more research onto what has been the impact of of these changes on clinical care and other areas of prescribing. Yeah, you're absolutely right, David. One can't be quite sure what the impact might have been on patients. You know, have they start using a different drug are they now buying their drugs from the pharmacy does that have an impact on their spending ability um and of course some drugs can be considered to be ineffective at one point in their in their life and then some years later be considered to be quite effective and then the pendulum might even swing away from them again so i think um it's an interesting area and i think like everything in life it's just about being thoughtful and if you're prescribing something which is considered to be ineffective, then it's really useful to make a really clear entry in the notes why you're doing it. You know, actually, patient has found this effective. Um, we've trialed, you know, something that makes it clear to people that you that you have been thoughtful about this. Because I think as long as you are thoughtful in your prescribing, as well as being evidence-based and patient-centered, then, then you're going to be doing the right thing for, for patients and for your own self. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for that summary. Um, you can find these and all our articles on our website at dtb.bmj.com. And you can also find all our previous podcasts. Uh, they're available at the top of the uh, website in a, in a blue button or a blue banner near the top of the webpage. If you want to get involved with DTB, do let us know. Um, happy to receive suggestions for articles or offers to review articles or offers even to write articles. Um, so leave us a comment at dtb@bmj.com, and I'll add a link to the article that Sid Wolf wrote for us for our anniversary issue in 2022, and also a link to the article about him that was published on Public Citizen website. And his book is available from Amazon and other online booksellers. So many thanks for listening to us, and hope you'll be able to join us in a month's time for the March 2024 podcast. Mm-hmm.